When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know what? This something-for-nothing economics isn't conservative, it's socialism. You issue the currency in which you borrow. And that means that um, uh, you are never going to have the problems that Greece had or Argentina did. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, we heard a lot about QE well before the pandemic, didn't we? Then a central bank started to bail out governments who spent big to see us through the crisis. We heard a lot more about QE. Now those people happy to take the money from the government when the chips were down are complaining that perhaps it's the reason behind inflation. But actually, QE, there's also people's QE. And maybe during the pandemic, we saw a bit of people's QE. And is that now why we have inflation? We'll look at the difference between them today on the Debunking Economics podcast. I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, I gave a a quote, Steve, from a a book from Mervyn King. And he was the Bank of England governor about the time that we started to see QE being introduced. Mm. So I thought it'd be interesting to see Uh, how he sees banks operating. So let me read a a paragraph from him, which you might find interesting. When a central bank buys or sells assets, it adds or subtracts from the supply of money. Someone, usually a financial institution in an auction, who sells £1 million of government bonds or uh, $1 million of government bonds to the Federal Reserve, receives a cheque drawn on the Fed. When that check is deposited into the person's own bank account, which increases by a million dollars, the bank presents the check to the Federal Reserve, who then credits the bank with one million dollars in the reserve account at that central bank. All good so far? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The immediate effect is that both the money supply and the central bank reserves rise by one million dollars. The same argument holds in reverse when the central bank wants to reduce the money supply. He says, changing the amount of money in the economy in this fashion using electronic transactions is simpler and faster than printing notes. But it is creating money just the same. It boosts the money supply by increasing bank deposits. Is it increasing the money supply? No, that's that's all completely accurate. Uh, and I was actually reading John Hearn recently instead of tweets by John Hearn. You know, my, my good mayor, one of the people who lets me say some of my best friends are neoclassicals, and he got the accounting completely and absolutely wrong. Uh, it was a joke reading his series well, you'd of hope tweets. He'd, you'd hope he'd get it right. Given Mervyn that was... King, that is accurate. Okay, yeah. His description is quite accurate. What's, he wasn't qualifying it by saying is, and what part of the economy does that money circulate? Well, and I was wondering, my question was going to be, is it actually adding, it's adding to the reserves. Is it, is it actually, it's, which is helping solve the liquidity of banks, which is often the, the, the reason why banks step in, isn't it? 
this is where double entry bookkeeping is so important. Getting, getting it's doing both. It's adding. You're going to say adding to the reserves, which are an asset of the banking sector, and adding to the deposits, which are a liability of the banking sector. Yeah, you've got to do both. You've got to add to the asset side and the liability stroke equity side to actually create money. And now, if you think about a non-bank financial institution, or think about think about a bank. Okay, let's, let's take the two. A bank has bonds. A bank also has reserves. If QE is done with a bank. The banks, the monetary value of the bonds the bank holds go down. The monetary value of the reserves the banks goes up. That's a swap on the asset side of the bank, which has no effect. The value total value of assets doesn't change. Therefore, the total value of liability stroke equity doesn't change. And the sum of the, the, the short the, the liabilities of the bank short-term liabilities and equally short-term equity, the sum of those two is the money supply. When you, you've got to add cash to that as well, but the electronic money supply is the liabilities, of the short-term liabilities of the banking sector and the short-term equity of the banking sector. So selling QE with banks alone does not create money, but QE with a non-bank does create money. And the idea there is that a, a non-bank has got... Uh, Assets like let's bonds. So I'm so I'm, I'm the Federal Reserve. You're yep. you're a commercial bank. I say you've got you've got a, a, a billion dollars in uh, or let's call it a million dollars uh, in U.S. Treasuries in bonds. Mm-hmm. And I come along and say, right, I've created a million. I'm going to use that money to buy those bonds off you, and that's going to get added to our balance sheet. You've now got a, so that money that I give to you. Uh, is now sitting in the reserve account, in your reserve account in the central bank. Is that right? No, but, it's just, not. And this right. is, okay, the, the, so I'm getting confused because I'm going to say that's just a credit swap going on there. Yeah, well, you, yeah. it depends on whether the, the organisation... You should see the raised the, eyebrows, uh, by the way. Uh, we can't pick up the raised eyebrows yeah, that's and look true. at disbelief. Because even though I read that book and, it made that, and that made sense, I just get more confused the more we talk about it. <laughs> you, that's why I've designed Minsky, my mm. software Minsky, okay? Because mm. uh, I got confused about this stuff before I built Minsky as well. You've got to be able to see double entry bookkeeping, not just in terms of your own situation, but all the other interlocking accounts in the economy as well. Right. So, so let's do this step by step then. Step by step. I, so I won't, I won't let, go a step ahead. Let me just explain each situation. You sell me what happens next, because I want to do this for QE, then I want to do it for, for you know, looking people's at how, QE. Okay. people's QE. Okay. So I'm the Federal Reserve. I say, right, we've got to do something about this crisis that we're in. We are going to engage in QE. Mm. I create... Uh, I say I come to you and say I am going to buy a million dollars worth of your bonds that, that are sitting in your reserves, mm-hmm. and you say, "Thanks." What next? Okay, if if it's a bank, then the bank's assets, which are bonds, go down by a million. The bank's assets, which are reserves, go up by a million. There's no change in the. In the, in the total value of its assets, there's no change in its liabilities. You haven't created money. But if you if you go into that to a non bank like a Morgan Stanley or a you know Vampire Squid, uh, then they as non bank financial institutions they have assets which are bank accounts. Okay, so that's effectively you know much larger versions of the deposit accounts you and I have. They have assets which are bonds. The value of the bonds have gone down. The value of the bank accounts have got have gone up. You've created money. Right. But, okay, so Mervyn King, that quote I gave you, though, was talking about uh, financial institutions. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. What he means by he means non-bank financial it's institutions, right? Okay. okay. If you buy money off of if you if you if if you engage in QE with a bank, you increase their reserves, you reduce their bond holdings, you don't change their assets, you don't change the liabilities they haven't created money. If you buy bonds off a non-bank financial institution, you reduce the value of bonds they hold, which are not cash, not money. Okay. You increase what's the, 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 deposit, the, the cash they have, deposits, right. but in the bank, you've created money. Because uh, you're, so, you, you're buying something off them with money that didn't exist before. Yeah, that's effect. right. Yeah, mm. You've created the money. So the central bank has got, and, and this is one area where I've, I've seen a statement by Ben Bernanke that is actually correct. And he, he said the bank, the central bank has an unlimited capacity to do this. So mm. it, so long as it, it, it can, if it wants to buy $100 trillion worth of bonds, if that much existed, it could buy $100 trillion. And suppose saying we're putting a hundred trillion in your account, uh, and here's a hundred trillion of, uh, of, of bonds we've bought off you. Right. They can do it. Okay, and they're saying, well, this is a quick and easy way of getting money out there. But yeah. the, but the issue is out where, uh, yeah. and the answer is it's gone to the financial institution. What are they going to do with it? They're going to buy shares, mm. and this is the weakness of the argument that it uh, the the QE as it was practiced only helps inflate asset values. Uh, because QE was mainly done with non-bank financial institutions. It reduced the value of bonds they have. It gave them more cash. They made money out of bonds because of the interest rate return on bonds. They don't make money out of cash. Okay. Uh, therefore, they've got to find another way to make money, so they then use that cash to buy shares. And that's what inflated share prices. So QE as practice drove up share prices dramatically. So... How much of it does actually end up being bought by financial institutions, though? Because if you, because oh, no, how much proportion? Of, like, so because 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 it would start its journey by being bought by uh, initially when a, when the, the government issues bonds tends to get bought by banks. It's bought it? by banks. So if, if, if in America, you've and got you're saying the no effect, no, no no difference whatsoever there because they are basically exchanging the cash they're holding. They're yeah. buying bonds yeah, of the same value. That, that has no role in creating money. Yeah. So the, the, what creates money is to create money, you've got to have an action which occurs on both the asset side and the liability stroke equity. Mm. That, that's essential. So when you look at the government, like a private bank creating money or private bank creating a loan, its assets go up, which buy the loans, its deposits go up, which are liability. So you increase on the asset side and the liability side, and that creates money. With the government, the government spends more than it takes back in taxation. It's putting more money into private bank accounts than it's taking out. The liabilities of the banking sector rise. The reserves of the banking sector also rise at the same time. So a government deficit creates money. A, a bank net bank lending creates money. But bond sales by the government don't create money. Now, if you want to have a money creation going on, it's got to be bond purchases from the non-bank financial institutions. That'll create money, but it's money which just circulates inside the financial sector. And as wild as these uh, these companies are, the one control they have is that they have to use their money buying financial. Uh, mm. They they can't go out and buy. Well, they do go and buy Lamborghinis ultimately. Okay, but they've got to be creaming that off in terms of bonuses and so and, on. And, and, and I'm trying. Money. I'm actually struggling to see how what path 
there would be for that transmission to find its way into a regular person having more well, money at the end come, of the day? It only comes out if the, the bank decide we've got to build a new building somewhere, so we've got to pay a construction company to build a building. Uh, we've got to hire new, more more uh, more stock market jockeys, hmm. so we've got to pay the wages that way. Or they're we've buying got to pay or, a larger bonus to whoever runs the company, so they right. so they're or, or they're, more yachts. Or, or they're yeah. buying into IPOs, I guess, rather yeah. than inflating existing asset prices yeah. in, in the share market. Or they buy market, initial share offerings brings. rather than buying. Problem is, of course, when when, when this is happening, it tends to be in difficult times, which is a time when there are probably not that many IPOs going on. Yeah, IPOs so, are failing, so yeah. that's, you know, that's you know, good buy IPOs. So yeah, it mainly inflates the value of existing assets. That's what mm. QE as practice actually did. Yeah. So, but I always thought that at times of QE, central banks were by and large not selling to those non-financial institutions. They were, they were, they buying, were buying from them, buying from them. Buying so, but from, they were, but, that's yeah, what but creates I, money, right? But I thought they would. Sorry, yeah, I meant buying, but I thought they, they were largely buying from from other banks. No, I mean it was a combination of the two. But uh, yeah, it was a combination. But it was largely banks, more bank than non-financial well, institutions. Well, no, from what I, I think it's about 80% non-bank and 20% bank, roughly oh, speaking. Right, okay. uh, because, I mean, there is no control now over the extent to which banks are required to hang on to the bonds which they buy in the primary auction. Uh, if I go back to my youth, <laughs> a long time ago now, I remember what's called the 28% rule in Australia. 28% of the bank's portfolio had to be uh, LGSs, local and government securities. Now, I saw that as when I learned it as a kid, my attitude was, well, it requires them to be financing what's been done by local government and, and, and by the government itself. But no, what it meant was they can't sell the bonds. They had to hang on to at least 28% of the bonds they bought off the... Right. Okay. Now that's been abolished, well, they can sell 90% or 100% of the bonds. So if they, if you have... If you have, let, let's say the government runs a, I work in large figures here. Imagine the government in America runs a deficit of a trillion. Okay, that puts a trillion dollars in deposit accounts and a trillion dollars in reserves. It's then required to issue bonds equivalent to that. So it sells a trillion dollars worth of bonds to the banking sector. So the reserves of the banking sector go down by one trillion. The value of the bonds that the banking sector owns go up by one trillion. But then, when in the deregulated world in which we live, those banks can now sell. One trillion worth of those bonds to non-bank financial institutions, the Morgan Stanleys, and so on. So, therefore, what happens in that case is the deposit accounts of the banks go down by a trillion. The holding of bonds they have go down also by a trillion. So, you've cancelled the government money creation, and what you've now got is a trillion dollars worth of bonds being owned by the, 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 the let's call them the the, uh, the vampire squids. Okay, okay. So then, when QE is practiced, that what happens there is you buy the so it says government money's being creation beans into the private sector has been cancelled by this bond sale by the banks. Now you do it in reverse, but the money you're creating when you do that reverse, you buy the bonds off the vampire squids. Their holdings of bonds go down by a trillion. Their holdings of cash in the bank accounts go up by a trillion. But all that money is in the financial sector of the economy, not the real side. Right, and that's the issue, isn't it? Because there's clearly no way that that can be transmitted anywhere else. Well, it can be and transmitted if you pay a large enough salary to your, you know, your your share market jockeys, and, and you they, pay a big enough bonus to whoever whoever's and the uh, obviously, and they they pay someone to clean get, the you know, car. Luxury consumption and to, coming out of it, not yeah, uh, not yeah. real investment. It's a very slow process, isn't it? All right. Mm. Well, so the other alternative then is people's QE, where yep. it goes directly into people's bank accounts. Or maybe not into people's bank accounts. There's other ways. It could go into construction projects and that sort of thing as well. So we'll look at that when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'm here too. 
and uh, we'll be back again in just a second. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Okay, well, we are looking at uh, QE versus people's QE on the podcast this week, and we've already looked at how QE, we've had an accurate description from Mervyn King, special guest on the podcast, at least in book form uh, today. Uh, He's a book entry. He's Mm. a book entry. And the problem, which is good, isn't it? Uh, Given that, you know, it is all double entry bookkeeping that uh, we've been talking about. Uh, having Paul Krugman at one and Ben Bernanke at the other as a bookends. Yeah. And the asses holding my books together. I think you should get something made. You should get the bookends, bookends made, shouldn't you? Uh, anyway, oh. uh, if your ass needs holding together, I don't know if we necessarily want to go there. I could buy a 3D printer. Yeah, I'm getting yeah. older. Uh, look, uh, we... Um, you can watch so, it. <laughs> so let's look at people's QE now then. Um, because the issue with QE, as we said before the break, is that it finds the money, new money is created, it finds itself... In the financial sector, where they don't know what to do with it, so well, they, they can just do buy, is, They're buy actually a, required to buy financial instruments, instruments with, with it. it. So there's no way, no readily way for, for most of it to find itself. No direct in the way. way. It can it, dribble into the it, private sector, oh, but the it dribbles. Whole drip down thing. It, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, so the people's QE. So Jeremy Corbyn, remember him? He he had it in his agenda of things. He was talking about uh-huh. uh, basically. Uh, Richard Murphy was. Uh, the mo- you know developed the model that that he was basing yeah. it on, uh, which is uh, which was sort of lambasted in the press along with everything else to do with Jeremy Corbyn as being uh, you know economically illiterate. It would make investing in the UK a risk. I mean, really, the uh, the, the mainstream press really didn't like this idea at all. Um, but. I think their approach was not that QE should go straight into people's, you know, the, the government basically puts more, um, or, or the central bank, wherever the money comes from. We would do it, which didn't come from government funding, of course, wouldn't mm. it? Um, but it would go into people's bank accounts. But I think Jeremy Corbyn's point was, well, maybe it shouldn't. Maybe it should be, it, uh, we should have an investment bank that basically uh, offers investments to help with infrastructure projects or projects that... Um, in, investors wouldn't get support through conventional banks. Mm-hmm. Whichever way, let's go through step by step mm-hmm. how how this would work. So you you feel like there needs to be more money created. You need to expand the money supply. Still a monetary approach, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That more money will create more growth in the economy. Uh, is that an accurate statement? First of all, for QE, before? no. I mean, the other the people's QE part of the idea of people's QE, similar to my. But the theory, irrespective, yeah. if you ignore how yeah, it's you're putting done, money the, into the economy you know, somehow, what, do you, what what's done with that money? 
Yeah. So if you look at normal QE, what that does is inflate the asset markets. Yeah. What you can do with people's QE is deflate the levels of private debt. Right, because you get the money, you're just going to use it to pay off your debt. That, First thing that, you're my, do- my, my particular, my version of people's QE is what I call a modern debt jubilee. Right, I don't and, think that's what Jeremy Corbyn had in mind. No, that's, he's not what he had, had in mind or what Francis Coppola talks about in her book either. It's all about growth Yeah, in their case. Yeah. But, but you, uh, you'll have more money to spend, you'll boost the economy. Yeah, if, and in yeah. fact, I suspect they might even say, "Well, we don't want people to pay off the debt. We want them to. Uh, we want them to spend." Well, I do want them to pay off the debt. That was my mm. proposal. Was that we have far too much private debt. Most of it's been purchased for speculation rather than investment. We need to reduce it because that's actually inhibiting people's willingness to spend. Their at an individual level, their attitude is, "I've got this huge amount of debt. I therefore I have to spend. I have to save money." But at the aggregate level, what the individual is doing by saving is slowing down how fast money turns over, which means you reduce GDP. Hmm. So I would be saying, oh, let's get the debt level down so people are less worried about being able to service their debt, more willing to spend, and therefore you boost level of economic demand by reducing the level of private debt. Right. So that's a demand-led approach, isn't it, that you're talking about there? When you think sensibly about the economy, most things are. are demand-led. But I think the Jeremy Corbyn approach was a bit more supply-led, wasn't it? If if the idea is that that you use, the, the government creates money which can be invested to create new opportunities for business to, to grow the economy so people buy more. Well, the investment is also part of demand. This is one thing people... I mean, I've, my own Minsky model, I've heard p- fellow post-Keynesians criticising that it's not a demand-level level. garbage. Investment is a major part of demand. Mm. Uh, it's an investment-led model rather than consumption-led right. model, OK? Yeah. So, you know, invest, if you, if you, and what, what Jeremy Corbyn was focusing on there is something we've spoken about in previous podcasts ourselves, and that's the dismal record of the British ruling class uh, on investment. Mm. And so he's saying, okay, let's use people's QE to simulate investment. And in the case of the UK, uh, with the level of underinvestment that's occurred here, both private and in infrastructure, then you do want to boost the level of investment rather than boosting household consumption. Do we get to the same place? Do we end up in the same place in both approaches? So if you, if you have this approach where you say, well, okay, let's encourage investment, more risky investment, let's give people the opportunity to, to be more entrepreneurial, more innovative, uh, so we get new ideas creating a growth in the UK economy, uh, then people will be able to pay off debt because they're starting to earn money. So, you, so we get your end game. Well, yours, yours is the mine, mine is, the, is, more, is the other way around. Yeah, you know, I mean, because I mean, and actually, there's Richard Vague's uh, book launch for the paradox of debt recently uh, made a, a, a nice case against the argument of let's boost GDP to reduce the debt ratio. Mm. What we're talking about doing is not reducing debt per se. We're saying let's reduce the ratio of debt to GDP. And so the argument is often used: well, let's make the economy grow faster, and that'll reduce the uh, level of the debt ratio by having a larger GDP on a on a you know, not a constant level, but a, let's say a, a larger GDP on a constant level of debt. And Richard's point was: when you look empirically, that has never happened. Okay, the the normal if you if you want to reduce the debt ratio, you've got to reduce the level of private debt itself rather than thinking you can get the economy to grow faster and reduce the debt ratio that way. Um, Historically, uh, the level of private debt hasn't come down, except when there's been a huge boost to government debt, 
uh, or there've been literal write-offs of debt through things like the Great Depression. Well, I guess when you got, if you're looking at ratios, when you've got such a high level of demand, you'd have to increase uh, uh, such a high level of debt. Sorry, mm. you'd have to increase demand so much more yeah. to try and. And yet, get the, the, the reason Richard calls the book the paradox of debt is that new money is created by new debt one for one, mm. whether that's government debt or private debt. So you've got debt as part of creating new money, which is part of growing your GDP. So you're caught up with this paradox that, you know, there's a tendency for debt in general to grow indefinitely. And you can then get to the point where the debt burden, particularly the private debt burden, which is one of the, is, is far more important. Uh, the private debt burden means the economy goes into stagnation because people aren't willing to spend because they're afraid they can't service their debt. So you've got to bring it, and that's why my focus has been you know, for 15, 20 years now, we have to reduce the level of private debt. But it, uh, And we're doing that, though, by increasing government debt, but, you know, by the traditional you know, definition of, of what debt is. In mm. the, in the, we, we are basically increasing the spending by the government without increasing revenue from, from the government. So most people would call that pr- the public sector debt. Yeah. Well, look, so it's a straight the, swap. The, the best way to cut through that particular argument is to imagine we abolished a little law saying the central bank can't buy bonds directly off the treasury. Mm. If you abolish that, then the government could run a deficit of a trillion dollars and send a trillion dollars worth of bonds to the central bank and it, its books would all be balanced in the way they are, they are now with no increase in the amount of debt the, of the, by the government to the private sector. So this gets back to the argument we have every time they hit the debt ceiling in the United States about can we get around this with a, just uh, minting a trillion dollar coin? Yeah, that'd be yeah. It's 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 basically not understanding the accounting, mm. and and see, seeing the government as being in 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 debt when it creates bonds, when in fact it's creating an income earning asset for the private sector. Uh, with the double whammy we've now got that that asset is being devalued by interest rate rises. So it is, the, the government debt is a fundamentally different creature to private debt. And private debt is the dangerous one for the sustainability of an economy. So people's QE, at least the way that I'd bring it about, would be directed to reduce the level of private debt by increasing the level of government debt initially. And then when you reduce the debt burden individuals feel, they have therefore less worry about debt servicing and so they were more willing to spend money, so you'd boost GDP by reducing the debt level. Right. And then, so the government would have to, would, would not have to be doing this on a continual basis. I mean, I want to... I, I wanna, I wanna it, is it still sort of self-correcting? Does, can it, the government... I mean, there, there's... It, when, when I model it, it, I mean, I've done very, very simple models of, of, of a people's QE where the government uh, issues, uh, cr- creates money for the private sector and it requires anybody who receives it who has debt to pay their debt down. And you have part of the economy with people owing and being in debt, and another part people getting a cash injection out of it. And what it t- t- tends to do is it redistributes income in such a way that even if I didn't, I even I, I don't model any change in people's willingness to spend, but you get a boost to the aggregate level of, of spending from the reduction in the level of private debt. Right. Do you also, in that model, do you include the collapse of the banking sector because they're not getting all of these these interest well, payments the from, from sector, the loans? This is this is the, the banking sector um, has made a made a mozza out of getting us all into private debt and charging us large mm. amount of interest for that private debt. So if you do want to go about QE, you've got, you're eliminating a huge source of income for them. You've got to give them alternative source of income. So the bonds ends up being. 
Right. Uh, they, get, they, they get like they, they're rather making six percent lending to the private sector. They get three percent on bonds from the government, but those three percent is a guaranteed three percent rather than the risky six percent of the private sector, and. Um, when, you know, it, is, it is a feasible, pardon my, my voice seems to be coming at the moment, it's a feasible way of reducing a level of private debt, taking that debt onto the government books where the government can handle it indefinitely and then stimulating the economy that way. Well, yeah, when we <clears throat> tend to think about the, the government spending money uh, to try and uh, sort of pump prime the economy, right. we tend to think about the government spending that money directly, don't we? And then you get straight into that whole argument about, well, can we trust governments to spend money Whereas right. this way we'd be putting money to the private sector. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So you don't have that issue. You I, don't. I, I, you so don't. you came through Woking on the train to come here, and I think I mentioned it on the podcast before, this is a city that created a £1.2 billion deficit through bad property investment. It's a council mm. that's basically made itself bankrupt where the uh, the cost mm. uh, of servicing that debt uh, for the local uh, ratepayer is uh, is is more than the they're actually raking in in mm. rate payments. So the council is good, uh, completely in debt because they had this idea that they were going to be uh, not Singapore on Thames, they were going to be uh, Singapore on the Basingstoke Canal, which sounds mm. like a bit of a far-fetched fantasy, doesn't it? Uh, so there's, yeah, there is that always that thought, isn't there? If you give money to, the, to, to government, particularly local government, they're going to sort of fritter it away in frivolous Projects. Just be money directly to people. Build. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's so in effect, you are letting the economy function. You just because yeah. we've made a huge mistake in letting the level of private debt reach this, uh, the heights that it has, and because and this is the conventional economic theory says private debt has no macroeconomic impact, which is completely wrong. And this again, uh, Richard's paradox of, of debt makes this case very well. Private debt bubbles cause booms. The collapse of those private debt bubbles cause busts. And it's absolutely the level of private debt and credit that matters economically, but they're not part of the current policy instruments of any government around the world. And it is a government decision, isn't it? It's nothing to do with the central bank, in effect. I mean, it's the government who decides how much and when, if you were to if you were to implement this. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the parliament has to pass the laws. Yeah. So if you look at laws like, like the deregulation of bank lending in the UK under Thatcher, that was passed by the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And then the Treasury is required to enable that to happen. And then the for the rules the central bank applies also change. Um, so uh, the decision-making is made at the level of parliament and the treasury in that sense. Rather, the central bank is a conduit. It's not the causal. Yeah, so, but the, so they've got to be in on it. So what does it mean for the independence of central banks? Because they are basically being instructed to facilitate this, aren't they? Well, they could be, for example, told to buy all the bonds off the off the treasury when mm. it issued created that money and and uh, that it, it is an instrument of government the central bank mm. is a clearing uh, you need a clearing house between private banks that's absolutely essential whether that's publicly owned or privately owned it's better i think publicly owned uh, but you need definitely the clearing house but then it's also the conduit for between the government sector and the private sector and it is, it, is, it is not a control mechanism. And the reason it's been made a control mechanism is because of the fantasies of neoclassical economists that everything can be controlled by the interest rate and that they're the best ones to set it. So the idea obviously is ultimately by reducing debt, this extra money would create uh, the ability for you to spend more so consumption would increase. Mm -hmm. It's not the time to do it now then, is it? Because that would be where we've got... Uh, productive capacity is constrained for by whatever reasons 
it's certainly not lack of demand, is it? So if you were to do it right now in this sort of environment, it would be inflationary, wouldn't it? But yeah, and that's why when, like when I put this before, when I was doing my aborted run for politics in Australia, uh, part of the idea was that people who had more cash than, uh, less, less debt than the cash injection they got through people's jubilee could be required to buy those bonds. Hmm. Therefore, they have an income earning asset uh, right. out of it rather than having – so they could therefore like – So you're forestalling consumption. Well, you're reducing spending from $100 to $3 per, yeah. per year, that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. So you could do it you – know, you've got ways to control it and direct it as a, as a policy mechanism. But like a, particularly since I'm focusing on the need to invest as much as we can in decarbonisation as soon as possible and to have as little consumption as possible possible in the meantime, then yes, I'd want those controls and uh, on spending. you still have the wealth effect, wouldn't you? So if, you, if you've got you know, a whole load of bonds that you didn't have before, you'd still feel wealthier. Yeah, so you'd still feel like you'd have that ability to go out and spend. But you also would might have the ability to think, oh, I don't have to go and borrow money and gamble on rising house prices to have something for my retirement. So do you think it would keep house prices down on that basis? Well, the or whole we... idea would be to reduce house prices. I mean, uh, I remember the old demographia survey that was done by the New Zealand property developer who became a, uh, a major critic of the house price bubble, and his argument always was that the the median house should sell for th- no more than three times the median income. Which now we've what, got what about used ten times right know, now. It used to be though, didn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, when we were growing up, that's what it was. It and was three times. And that was a sensible situation. Yeah. The whole idea of deregulating and letting banks get in there is what screwed up the financial property market, and we've got to get rid of them. And people's queue would be one way to go about doing it. See, it used to be three times the major uh, earner in the house. And uh, now it's sort of like 11 times the household. Uh, I know, I know. The, uh, having women uh, coming into the workforce, and for those who... Which is fantastic not, that they are doing that. But, what it, but, it, but, it, but what all it the money that they're earning it, it, has pushed up house, house prices. So you've got two stressed individuals. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I vividly remember my own family situation. My mother and father married when they were both working for the bank, of the Commonwealth Bank, and the law at the time required one of them to leave the bank. Mm. Okay, so mum, of course, left, and dad was the one who went on with a career inside the bank. But on one income, they were in a family with five kids, and things weren't exactly easy, but they weren't tight and impossible these days. Now you've got two parents with maybe two kids struggling like crazy to pay the mortgage. All the benefit of that, of, of, of the, of, you know, of, of democratizing access to the workforce and de-sex and you know, re- removing the, the sexism of the 50s has caused higher house prices and more burdens on individuals. Uh, you know, the banks have been the beneficiaries of that, not the, not the population. It does feel, doesn't it, like any extra cash that we've made in our lifetimes... Has all gone into house prices. All gone into housing. Yeah. And we allowed it to happen, which is bizarre. That yeah. No one at some point said, hang on a second, that house isn't worth that much. Uh, but uh, because there'll always be someone who says, yes, it is, yeah, and they'll go and, and buy like it one anyway. Of, one of the classic ironies I saw when I was campaigning in Australia was looking at the statistics of the proportion of the population that owned their house versus the proportion that had uh, owned it outright versus those with debt versus those that were renting. Now, the whole idea of these policies was to increase the level of home ownership. And guess what happened? Mm. It reduced. Mm. More renters... Yeah, more people with mortgages, and less is- owning their houses outright. The finance sector came out ahead again. The roving cavaliers of credit won, and the whole there of people's career is to reduce the power of the roving cavaliers of credit. Yeah, 
I think there might be a next chapter in this as well. I've got a, f- a friend who uh, invested in, in property for students and uh, w- with his wife, and they had uh, several houses. Uh, th- they've got out of that game now because they've almost been forced out of the game because the regulations on uh, property mm. uh, have been increased so much that basically having an older property that you adapt to a house mm. uh, is next to impossible. Mm. Uh, but developers are building, you know, new blocks of flats for students that mm. are on spec because they helped write the specs that the government mm. is implying on all these other private properties. So they've got out of it. So it's all, it's all going out to, you know, the, the individual landlord is now being replaced by... Uh, BlackRock. Yeah, mm. the, the the major investors are property investors. Mm. Uh, so that's the way that's going. But anyway, that's the next chapter in all of that. Look, in the next chapter of this podcast mm-hmm. is gold, the new gold. Uh, so BRICS nations are, you know, looking at uh, developing a trading currency and there's talk about it being backed by gold. How's that going to work? That oh, seems my like, God. That seems like crazy thinking, this idea that we'll return to the gold standard, oh the good old days. So we'll look at how that could possibly go wrong uh, next week on the Debunking Economics podcast. Good to talk, Steve. Okay. Yep. The Debunking Economics podcast. 